0: If you'll find in your Bibles, please, that, uh, that first reading we had, it's on page 1130, and we're looking at the sort of end of the chapter, so uh, it's Romans 2, page 1130. And even as we open our Bibles, let's just pray. Lord, it's with the recognition of our need of you, and we pray, please, Lord, that you will open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word for your dear name's sake. Amen. Well, the, uh, the task for this evening is quite plain. There it is on your service sheet. I didn't invent this. There's the man who's responsible. Who needs the church when it's full of hypocrites? Who needs the church when it's full of hypocrites? Excuse me, I'm not calling you any names, but that's what it says. Um, Usually, we like to have a passage which deals with the the whole subject so we can work through it together. If anyone can think of a Bible chapter that does deal with it, can you please uh, let me know? (laughs) Answers please on a postcard. I did did think of um, Revelation chapter 3, the church at Laodicea, but it doesn't... Well, it doesn't deal with it all. So, what we'll have to do, and I trust you'll bear with me, we'll have to um, look at one or two scriptures and get some sort of sense of where we're going. Now, no doubt you're well aware of the time-honoured response to those who say, I don't go to church, full of hypocrites. And of course you say, oh, don't worry, one more won't make any difference. And yet, and yet, there is a problem to face, isn't there? When we consider the sad state of the church, even our church. So just three things to think about. So if you do fall asleep, you'll know when you wake up, if you, you'll sort of get which point we're on. A misunderstood f- fact. An uncomfortable truth. Truth and a glorious reality. That sounds fairly decent ending. A misunderstood fact, an uncomfortable truth, and a glorious reality. A misunderstood fact. Uh, The the word hypocrite comes from the idea of one who answers. And it was applied to those who dialogue, and from thence to uh, play actors, those who pretend to be what they're not. And sadly, the church can be full of them, can't it? But there are many of whom I would hesitate. To be honest, I'd hesitate to use the word hypocrite. You see, we can all be guilty of unintentional play-acting, assuming a role that isn't really ours. Take, take the way that the Apostle Paul writes of his fellow Jews in Romans chapter 2, that we had... In our first reading, Uh, you you see how he is tackling them, accusing them of of not following the law they profess. Uh, That verse 23, whoops, that verse 23, you who say, no, wait a minute, 23, you who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, and see the way he sort of ends it in this particular portion, this chapter, down at verse 28. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. A man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. I can imagine a Jewish reader bridling at this. I can imagine him spluttering. What do you mean? Every Jew isn't a Jew. Am I not a Jew? Born in a Jewish household? My mother's a Jew? I'm circumcised? I try to keep the rules? And you can hear... Paul, can't you? You can hear Paul. But that's outward. That's outward. What about inner trust and faith in the living God of the Old Testament and obedience to him? an obedience that leads to faith in the promised Messiah like Nathaniel in John chapter 1. The one of whom Jesus says, doesn't he? He's a true Israelite. One in whom there is no guile. One who recognises who Jesus is. But of course, this has a little sort of tag on it, doesn't it? A little sort of catch into our hearts. Because you see, what he's saying about Jews can so easily be applied in a similar way to our claim to be Christians. Am I not a Christian? Born in a Christian country? question there but that's what we say isn't it? Born in a Christian country, Christian England baptised perhaps even confirmed attending church even taking communion and what would Paul say? But this is outward this is all outward observance what about the inner reality? Uh, as Billy Sunday uh, he was an American evangelist of a previous generation, as he observed, you can go into a garage as much as you like and never come out a motor car. And you can go into church as much as you like and never come out a Christian. And there's a sad truth and a sad bite there. He might have said automobile. But motor car, that's the way it's written. So there are two things we need to define before we really start, I suppose. Who is a Christian? And what? is the church. First of all, who is a Christian? Right, well, a Christian is a person, a man, a woman, a boy, a girl. A Christian is a a woman who uh, is a a person who recognises that they're not giving God his rightful place in their lives. That they can't even live up to their own standards. Talk about the standards of a a holy God. Uh, A Christian is a person who is aware that they've failed, failed miserably in thought, in word, in action, thinking, saying, doing that which is hurtful and mean and soiled and godly, just, just plain wrong, the whole life out of kilter with the living God. It's what the Bible calls sin, of course. And recognising that before God we're all guilty and heading for judgment and we desperately, but desperately need a saviour. And thank God, he's provided a saviour, hasn't he? No, not really. Not a saviour. He's provided the saviour. He's come to us in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who in his death on the cross took all our, our wrongdoing upon himself. All our selfishness and nastiness and our pride and our jealousy, our deceit, our Filthy thoughts, our outbursts of anger. He takes it all upon himself and bears the punishment of our sin. He suffers our hell. And a Christian is someone who comes to him in repentance and faith. What's that mean? What's that mean, repentance and faith? Well, repentance is a complete change of mind. A right about turn. You know what that is, don't you? Of course you do. This is the South Island, South Island. So you're heading south, and you're marching south. And then there's that fellow there with a loud voice and stripes on his arm. And you're heading south, and you said, right about here! And you do. You do, or you're in trouble. You do. You're turning your back on where you went. I was heading south, I'm now heading north. That's repentance. I was going my own way. Now I determine to go God's way. I determine to go God's way and put my total trust in the Lord Jesus as my Saviour. For this life and for the next. You see, it's a matter of the heart. Not what we are outwardly. With our church attendance and religious rituals but what we are inwardly with our total confidence. Not in what we do, but in what Christ has done for us. The one who on the cross cries out as he gives his life. It is finished. The work of salvation is completed, terminated. It's done. Nothing more to do but to follow and to trust him. Who is a Christian? It's inward. What is a church? Do you remember the uh, childhood uh, action rhyme? Do they still do it? Right, see if I can remember. Here is the church, and there's the steeple. Open the door. And uh, do they do this now? <laughs> do they do it? I just used thought I know you've got biceps on your thumbs now with all that you do with texting and uh, <laughs> and playing. I'm sounding like Victor Meldrum. But anyway, <laughs> open the door and there's all the people. That's it. The church, you know this, you know this. The church isn't the building, the church is the people. Specifically, it's God's people. The assembly of his people, those who trust and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And they meet together for for mutual encouragement to worship the Lord and place themselves under the authority of his word. So, not every church is a church. There are many where the gospel isn't preached, where our need isn't presented, where Jesus isn't presented, except perhaps as a great teacher or as a great example. To call yourself a Christian doesn't make you a Christian. There are people who, without realizing it, a are playing a role assuming they're Christians with all the outward trappings but without the inner reality of a personal relationship with God through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a misunderstood yet irrefutable fact. Not all Christians are Christians and not all churches are churches. Forgive us for the, uh, the confusion But it was ever thus. The first century letters, many of these letters in the New Testament were written to correct errors that were were threatening to swamp the early church. It's still around. It's still around. So, a misunderstood fact, but then you can't really dodge it, can you? What about an uncomfortable truth? You see, having said all that, Even as Christians, we need to apologise to you. So often, we don't live up to what we profess. Forgive us. Forgive us if we appear critical and unforgiving. We who pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We who have forgiven people are to be forgiving people. We must ask your forgiveness when we fail so miserably. Appearing judgmental. Exclusivist. Well, might you call us hypocrites. And did you notice, now's your cue to turn the page. Did you notice that second reading from James, that is page 1214, 1214, it's James chapter 2. James is an awkward character. He's so practical, it's it's convicting. It really is. If you have a trouble with your tongue, just read chapter three, but not now, not now, it's chapter two now. We we believe him to be the Lord's brother, or should be half brother, of great had a position within the church in Jerusalem. And see who he's writing to there, James chapter two, verse one. My brothers as believers, he's writing to Brothers in the Lord, is uh, writing to Christian brethren who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that? My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, y- you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See how he calls their, uh, their attention uh, to the fact that we are to love our neighbour as ourselves. This royal law, as he calls it, look down at verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. We are to love our neighbour as ourselves. So what have we got to say as a church? As a church here at Forward? Please forgive us if you've ever felt left out. Left out because of status or occupation. Gender. Age or income. In a few moments we'll be invited to kneel at the communion rail. And remember our Saviour who died for us. Whoever we are, whatever home we come from, whichever car we drive or don't drive, we all kneel on level ground before the reality of the cross and the reality of the Lord's death for us. Forgive us, please forgive us if we've ever given any other impression as a church or as individuals. But sometimes it gets worse than that, doesn't it? Can you use those powerful thumbs and turn back a little bit to Galatians. Will you turn back to Galatians chapter 5? It's the end part of it, so it's page 1172. 1172. Paul, one of Paul's earliest, if not the earliest, but certainly one of the earliest epistles that Paul wrote with problems arising in the Christian church. Look at verse 13. Again, he's addressing the brothers, you see. And again, he's going to uh, quote that same scripture uh, that James quoted. Notice that. Verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. That's what a church is. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Well, why do you read 15 then? If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other. There at each other's throats. It's a church riven, or churches riven by controversy. Thankfully, it's something that Forward has largely avoided. But it's not always thus everywhere, is it? One of the happiest churches encountered in the New Testament is the congregation at Philippi. Paul says when he writes to them, that, you know, he, 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 he thinks of them with joy every time he prays with them. You know that, some folks you pray with only is a toughie. Some people you pray, wow, brilliant fella, keep with him, you know. And, and every time he prayed for this church, it was with joy. And yet even in the congregation at Philippi, you read in the letter that he sent to them, uh, you don't need to turn to this, you look at it later, in, in Philippians chapter 4, we find two ladies who are keen, keen Christians, serving the Lord, active in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, and yet they're with their horns locked in strong disagreement. So much so that the Apostle Paul appeals to another member of the church, loyal yoke fellow, he says, the fellow, perhaps the name of the man, which is Sisygus. So he, he writes to loyal Sisygus, go and sort them out. Get them to talk to each other. A cold shoulder isn't to be present in a warm fellowship. Even in the happiest church that you find in the New Testament letters. In Britain, we're usually more sophisticated in our disagreements than in some cultures. I well remember a crowded business church meeting in the Amazon town of Abaetetuba. We, we were actually living outside of town in a jungle clearing, in a Bible school situation, and we were travelling all over the place. But on occasion, when we were free, we were in the, the main church. Uh, an, an Australian missionary had planted the work and it was now in Brazilian leadership and we became aware that things were getting bumpy so I thought I'd, I'd better become a member <laughs> so when I'm a, I'll become a member of the church and used to sit at the back there I, I, as I say it was a crowded church meeting and this is the tropics it was a big not as big as this central bit but it was quite a big place Absolutely packed. And of course, because it's in the tropics, all the windows are open, uh, doors open, center church, so I'm not the only interested observer, all they are there around there. I forget what the topic was, but I know that the meeting was getting more and more agitated raised voices, angry outbursts. It grew stormier and stormier. And the upshot was that here came. Senor Moissy, striding down the central aisle. I well remember him. He's now with the Lord, but I well remember him. Stocky fellow with a short fuse. And he was striding down and he was going to hit the, he was going to punch the pastor right on the nose. Poor old Senor Veracruz, there at the front behind the table. And I thought, I can't let this happen. I just can't, it was totally pandemonium. And I bellowed out, I I, I tell you I've got a loud voice when I want to, and I I, I bellowed out, I won't try and bellow this out. Brethren, I've never been so disgusted in all my life. Let us pray. And there was a stunned silence. And uh, without any authority to do so at all, I was just a church member, I dismissed the meeting. And uh, waited and told them to wait until they, it cooled down. Thankfully, I, I must tell you, I've, I've had no cause to repeat the exercise in forward. <laughs> and in any case, age and uh, decrepitude dictate that others must rescue Paul if he comes under attack. You say, what's the point of telling us that? Well, the point is this, you see, and it may be applicable very much to some here. The point is that the church isn't always what it's cracked up to be. And some of you may have walked away from sad situations which have left you totally disillusioned with no desire to become associated with church again. If that's church, if those are Christians, well, we can only hang our heads and apologize profusely. Please forgive us when Christians behave in ways that demean the faith they profess. We confess that many times we truly do deserve the label hypocrite. We let ourselves down. We let you down. And worst of all, of course, we let our Lord and Saviour down. Forgive us. A misunderstood fact. Not everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. Not every church is a church. An uncomfortable truth. We don't always live the way we should. We don't live together the way we should. But it does lead us to a glorious reality. A glorious reality. Unworthy as we are. Failing as we are. God has called us to himself through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps the the finest Christian Whoever lived, the Apostle Paul, he says, not as though I have already attained, either were already perfect. And he speaks of pressing on. And so must we all. There's a story told of Robert Murray McShane, perhaps embellished by time, but this is, as I heard it, he was a, Church of Scotland minister in Dundee, a man of prayer and a powerful preacher. They still speak of him in Dundee in the churches. His fragrance of his ministry is still there. Strange when you think that he died in 1843 and died at the age of 30. A very short ministry. But what a powerful ministry. And one Sunday after the sermon, he was at the door bidding Uh, Goodbye and God bless to his parishioners. And a lady comes out and she gushes at him. Gushes. Oh, Mr. McShane, you're a saint. And his reply? Lady, if you could look into my heart, you'd spit in my face. He was totally aware of his unworthiness, but he was a saint nonetheless. As good as we seek to be, none of us would like our thought life scrutinized, would we? You see, McShane's security, his faith, was in the Saviour who bore his sins and secured his eternal salvation, not in his own goodness or his own abilities. A colleague of ours in Brazil was Richard Roach. He brought a a beg bike from Britain. I can't think why, but he did. He brought a sit-up-and-beg bike from Britain and and he pedaled around town in his upright style. I can't even remember if he had a basket in the front. That sort of bike. And he gained the reputation as the saint on the bicycle. Usanto na bicicleta." That was dear old Richard. Tragically, he died while home on home leave, on furlough. He died from a very aggressive disease. He'd married, a, he'd married a, a, a Canadian girl. So he was on furlough. They spent part of the time in Britain and part of the time in Canada. But on the way, he stopped off at, um, in uh, our American headquarters, which is in Philadelphia. And he stopped off there and he was having a problem with his neck and he got some lumps on his neck. So he went to the doctor and they, they, they said, you've got a short time to live. You've got a week to live. Well, his, uh, his folks back home, his, his dad and one of his brothers were medics, and back there in Worthing, so he flew straight back and the diagnosis was, uh, it was confirmed. Very aggressive. Uh, before his death, he wrote to the Kayapo Indians amongst whom he'd worked in Brazil, I'm going, t- I'm going to the father's house. You come too. You come too. At his request, words were carved on his gravestone, which I I gather come from a hymn. I, I don't know the hymn at all, but these are the words. My sins deserve eternal death, but Jesus died for me. If it isn't a hymn, it ought to be set to music. That says it all, doesn't it? My sins deserve eternal death, but Jesus died for me. He saw himself... As totally unworthy, but eternally safe. Not because of what he did. But because of what Jesus has done for him. Now where does such faith, where does such certainty come from? Is it just wishful thinking? Self-delusion maybe? Not really, is it? It it, it comes from the assurance of the, of the promise-keeping Son of God himself. Listen to these words. Better, you, you find them with me. We're just going to pick some out. We're not going to look at the, at the context. They speak by themselves. Will you turn to, to John chapter 5? It's page 1069, 1069. John chapter 5. And here are the words. The words we're going to pick out are words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Do you believe him? Is he believable? Is he trustworthy? Here it is. John chapter 5, verse 24. I tell you the truth. That's that phrase, isn't it? In the old version it used to be, verily, verily. Remember that? Some of you do. Amen, amen, literally. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word... And believes him who sent me. Who sent him? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's God. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. You can't mistake what Jesus is saying, can you? Copper-bottomed guarantee. Just turn over the page. Chapter 6. Chapter 6, at the top of page 1071, you'll find verse 40. Verse 40. For my Father's will, says verse 40, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Turn on a few pages more and just get to John chapter 10. This is the end of the trail. John chapter 10, what a beautiful chapter. John chapter 10, 1076. 1076. John chapter 10. And look down to verse 11. You know this so well. You've heard this. Surely you've heard this. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd, says Jesus. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, for his followers. For those who follow him. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Look at the next page. Again, it's still chapter 10. And uh, where do we look? Uh, just look at verse 27. Where he speaks to his followers, his sheep. Those who belong to his flock. Those who are following him. He says in verse 27, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one. Now, let the Lord's words soak into your soul. Let it percolate through your soul. This is Jesus. This is the one who came from glory to be your saviour. And here's his guarantee. Let your confidence be Not in what you do, you see. But in what the Lord has done for you. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In his death, he opens heaven's door for us. Here's our assurance. A glorious reality. Even when we're what we are, he's done this for us. So what can we say? What can we say? Well, forgive us. Forgive us where we've ever given the wrong impression. We're far from perfect. We've all a long way to go. But we're totally sincere in trusting and following the Lord Jesus Christ. And can we wholeheartedly invite you, if you're not part of it, can we wholeheartedly invite you to join us? After all, there's, there's still room, you know. Still room for one more hypocrite. Especially one who's tired of play acting and wants to follow Christ for real. That's what the church is all about. That's what it's all about. To encourage each other in our faith and in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're all on level ground. King or peasant, there's only one way. Repentance from sin and turning in faith to the risen Saviour who died for us. Let's just pray together. (laughs) Respond in your own way. Not to what I've said, but what promises that Jesus gives. Respond in your own way. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep.